Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Uh, For those of you who haven't um, maybe been watching online or you haven't been here in worship, uh, we started last week a series on Revelation. Um, So I hope you don't log out or get up and leave. Don't worry. We're going to be okay. If you were here last week or if you watched online, uh, you already know the spoiler, really the point of the whole series. We're going to do this really at least until Lent. Um, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. The letter, the book of Revelation is all about what? all about Jesus. And that is so important and we need to remind ourselves each week because as we keep getting deeper, the images are going to get intense and some of it will make us worried and a little fearful. So we always need to remember at the end of the day, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. And if our reading and our interpretation of the book takes us anywhere other than the foot of the cross, the foot of Jesus himself, then we're off track and we need to refocus and see this picture that he's painting of himself for us. Amen? Fair enough? All right. So, next time I say the book of Revelation is all about everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's like for real, even if you weren't here, you you could answer that, right? All right. So, this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, It's one of my favorite quotes about the book of Revelation. It doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. (laughs) Uh, So like the letter itself at first that might seem like nonsense, it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. But this quote comes from a scholar named Bruce Metzger, um, and he's maybe one of the most brilliant theological minds of the modern time, of our time. Uh, Dr. Metzger was known around Princeton Seminary. Uh, He was a sweet older man, uh, an amazing teacher, but he was really known because he has an incredible memory. Were any of you... uh, encouraged to memorize Bible verses as a kid. I almost said forced, (laughs) but were you encouraged to memorize Bible? Yeah. My good Baptist upbringing uh, encouraged that. Uh, I remember a few years ago uh, when I was here before, uh, I was preaching a sermon from the Gospel of John, and I really wanted to deliver the first 14 verses of that book from memory. And I did it, but I was terrified. And it's probably the most scripture that I've ever memorized in one sitting. Uh, memorization of things word for word, it's never really been my thing. I like making stuff up. <laughs> um, but Dr. Metzger, he had, he had the entire New Testament memorized in Greek. Now, he also knew German and Latin, and of course, he spoke English. So I want you to think about what that means. Because he had the New Testament memorized in Greek, That means that on the spot, he could translate into the other languages. That means that he effectively had the entire New Testament memorized in four languages. So I have a friend who was a student at Princeton when he was there, and he told me that kids would go up to him all the time, and they would just throw out a Bible verse to see if he could quote it, to see if he could just say it off the top of his head. And he would always answer, sure, in what language? (laughs) So I tell you that because it's amazing. But also, just so you know, this this guy knows what he's talking about. He was a walking New Testament. He knows his stuff. And in reference to the book of Revelation, he says 
It doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. All right, so what does that mean? Well, this morning uh, we're going to take a look again at the second half of chapter one. Uh, So we're going to read through it along the way. I'm going to break it up, explain some of the imagery. Uh, We're going to try to understand why John used the imagery he used, and then we're going to see what it has to do with us today. All right, sound good? Okay, good, because that's what we're doing. Let's pray. God, uh, be present with us as we hear this description of your son, as we hear this description of Jesus as he is right now. And that the power of your Holy Spirit would be present with us in our hearing and the reading of the word. So that in the midst of all of the mess and the noise and the nonsense in this world, that we could clearly see who Jesus is and we could hear what he has to say to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. All right, so let's start. This is Revelation 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now I want to stop there. Uh, Dr. Metzger's quote, it inspired the two ways to read Revelation that I shared with y'all last week. Uh, Last week we talked about how you can either read Revelation actually or you can read it literally. And if you missed last week, it's online. I would encourage you to go watch it because we flush it out a little bit more. Uh, But this week, just let me give you an example of how this works um, as we read through our text today. Uh, So notice in that reading, Jesus tells John to write down what he sees and to send that letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are all churches 2,000 years ago that are in what is now modern day Turkey. Was anybody counting? How many churches is that? Seven. Okay, now in verse 12 and 13, Jesus, it says, is standing in the midst of lampstands. How many lampstands are there? There's seven. It doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. You see, to read this text actually, that's language I'm using, okay? To read this text actually turns the number seven into nothing more than a statistic. And if that were true, then that means that Jesus was only concerned with those seven specific churches that existed in a particular part of the world at a specific time in history. And if that's true, that means that this entire letter has no relevance for us today, that it wasn't written to us. If you're gonna read Revelation actually, That also turns those seven lampstands into nothing more than statistics. It's nothing more than a detail about the decorations in heaven. There's seven lampstands. To be honest with you, I'm a little underwhelmed. I thought heaven would be radically more ornate than that. So we have to make a decision. We talked about this last week. We are either going to read numbers as statistics or as symbols. 
Think about this from verse 4. This is problematic when you read it actually. It says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits before his throne. Well, what's that? I mean, is John telling us new information that there's actually seven spirits of God? No. Uh, The Presbyterian pastor, the guy who wrote the message, Eugene Peterson, uh, he says that Revelation doesn't tell us anything we don't already know. There's nothing new in Revelation. It just tells us what we already know from the rest of Scripture in fantastic new ways. So when talking about these seven spirits, John is actually borrowing an idea that goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, the Greek translation of that passage says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and godliness, and the spirit of the fear of God. Seven spirits that describe to us the complete nature of the Holy Spirit as it cares for us, as it nurtures and guides us. You see, reading Revelation actually, turning numbers into nothing more than statistics, it actually robs Revelation of all of its power. So I truly believe that the numbers, the colors, the images in Revelation, they're not statistics, they're symbols. And I read them as symbols all the way through because I believe that Revelation wasn't meant to be read actually. It was meant to be read like all literature is meant to be read, literally, which you hear me say it all the time, means according to the type of literature the author wrote. And what we know from biblical scholars over the past 2,000 years and from the Jewish rabbis who came before them We know this without a doubt. The number seven in scripture is an important number. And it's a number that signifies completion and wholeness. And it's usually always related to the work of God. How many days of creation are there? And how many days of the week today? Seven. This is a pattern. Remember, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. Let's keep reading. This is verse 13 again. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his hand he held, in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. This is the image of Jesus that he painted for himself that Beth was talking about. So let's look at the way John describes this image of Jesus. Now, we've been talking for weeks, for months actually, about the importance of biblical literacy here at First Press. How we have to know scripture to understand scripture and to really know Jesus. Now, for those of you this summer who read the Bible cover to cover with me over 100 days, a lot of that should have rung a bell. One phrase in particular should have really stood out. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. In the Gospel of Mark, the son of man is Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself. But it actually goes back even farther than that. Now look, for like two minutes, I'm going to lay a lot of scripture on you. So just hang in, and it's all going to make sense in the end, okay? This is from Daniel 7. 
Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. The Ancient of Days was Daniel's way of talking about God. Listen to how Daniel describes the Ancient of Days in the verses that came just before this. He says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. Now listen to this from Isaiah 1. Isaiah writes, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And how does John begin his description of the Son of Man? That the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Back to Daniel. He goes on to say this about the Son of Man. He says, He was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John goes on to tell us that this figure that he sees is wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That robe is Old Testament imagery that symbolizes Israel's high priest. The one in charge of making the sacrifices on behalf of all the people. The sash across his chest, the golden sash. It's the symbol of Israel's king. Now I know that was a lot of jumping around in scripture, but can you see what John is doing? You see, he's making it perfectly clear that Jesus is the one all of these Old Testament passages are pointing to. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all this scripture, all of it. That he's the point. That not only is he a man, but he's the one seated on the throne with authority and power. He's the one identified with the Ancient of Days. He is God incarnate. He's everything the scriptures have been leading to. He's the true high priest. He's the one true king. When you read this 2,000 years ago, you're thinking, okay, so he's not like Caesar, this self-declared son of a self-declared God. These Caesars who keep dying and just leaving their kids in charge, he's describing to me something different. He's saying this is God in the flesh, God with us. You see, I really believe that John is being shown things. He's given insight into the kingdom of God. And I think some of the things that he's seeing, he doesn't even fully understand it. He may not know exactly what he's looking at. I mean, just imagine yourself being in the presence of Jesus as he is right now, risen and glorified, seated at the right hand of God. Last week, Beth told the story of the road to Emmaus, those two disciples who walked with the resurrected Jesus. They knew Jesus before he died. They walked an entire journey with him and had no idea who he was. Imagine getting a glimpse of reality on the other side, seeing God's future kingdom even now in the present, do you think you might have trouble describing it? We have a difficult time, even as scientifically advanced as we are, we have a difficult time describing reality as we see it every day. How would you describe things that you might not recognize yourself? Well, of the 404 verses that make up the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, here's the point. 278 of those verses either quote or directly reference the Old Testament. 
You see, what John is doing is he's relying on Scripture to describe these incredible images that he's being shown. He is not making this up. He's describing what he's being shown by Jesus about Jesus, but he's doing so using the language of Scripture. He's using the Word of God to describe Jesus, who is the Word of God. It's like John is saying, y'all, because he was from Texas, um, it's like he's saying, y'all, these colors, these images, they are more than my human mind can comprehend. So let me tell you what this is like. He looks like that son of man that you remember from Daniel. Remember the hair on his head is white like wool. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice like the sound of rushing waters. Every bit of that comes from scripture. Does it sound like John wants us to read this actually? As statistics, as a physical description of Jesus? Does it sound like he's given us the physical details? Does it sound like it means what it says? Or does it mean what it means? In my Revelation class on Wednesday nights, which we started last week, but you're still welcome to join anytime, uh, we go deeper into what all these symbols mean. But the important part for us to understand today is that when John uses the word like to describe what he's being shown, he follows it with something from the Old Testament, Old Testament language to describe what Jesus is like. Language that he knew, language that his audience was familiar with, language that we must be familiar with if we're really going to recognize who Jesus is. So he uses the word like, he's like. On Wednesday, I was just preparing for the class and then I was reading over this and I came out of my office like I do, I think often, Uh, Mark and Sabrina were standing in their offices and I walked out like, oh my gosh, y'all. Guess how many times John uses the word like in chapter one. Guess. 48. No, Sarah. That's a great number. And I'm going to go look because maybe throughout the book of Revelation it's 48. But it's actually a more symbolic number. Yeah. He intentionally uses that word seven times. This is all by design. And it's beautiful when you start to understand what he's doing. Let me keep reading. This is verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. And then this is how the chapter ends. He says, write therefore what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, It's another way of saying the message to the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In that verse, he's telling us what I showed you was a symbol. Here's what it means. I wish he did that more often, (laughs) but he doesn't. But that tells us he wants us to read it as an image of something greater. 
And I hear so many people when they talk about Revelation, I hear so many people say that they're afraid to read it, that they're afraid of it. Imagine if you're John, you're not reading about this vision, you lived through it. John's first reaction to everything he was seeing was to fall on his face as if he were dead. Do y'all remember from the Old Testament, what happens if you look directly into the face of God? You would die. It was too beautiful, too great, too wonderful, whatever, but for some reason humans couldn't look directly into the face of God or it would cost them their lives. You see, John expected to die because he knew that he was looking into the face of God as he was looking at the face of Jesus Christ. And speaking into that fear, Jesus' beloved disciple, his friend that he walked on earth with, he sees him cowering and afraid, waiting to die, and what does Jesus say? How does the word of God respond to that fear? He says, do not be afraid. You see, John is terrified and prepared to die because it's just too much, too perfect for any human to imagine. And in response to that fear, in compassion and love, the cosmic, resurrected, glorified, all-powerful Jesus bends down to pick him up with his powerful right hand and says, do not be afraid. I hear so many people, when they talk about what's happening in the world around us, I hear so many people admit that they're afraid. And y'all, that's not crazy. These are scary times. These are strange times. Strange things are afoot. (laughs) But these aren't the first strange times. These aren't the first scary times. In the first century, Christians were crucified by Rome. And do you know why they were crucified and not just killed in some other way? They were crucified as a joke. Because the word Christian means Christ-like or little Christ. So the Romans would find these Christians and they would say, okay, you want to be like Jesus? You want to be like Christ? Guess what we did to him? And we're going to do the same thing to you. So they hung him on a cross, just like their master. They were afraid. Twenty or so years after the death and resurrection of Jesus... There was an emperor named Nero. He crucified and burned Christians for fun. There's one account that says that he filled a field with 2,000 Christians, crucified them, and set them on fire so that he would have light for a party. They were afraid. Forty years later, around 96 AD, that's about the time that I believe Revelation was written, there was another emperor. His name was Domitian. He persecuted and murdered Christians too, but not for fun. He did it because they wouldn't worship him, because they wouldn't bow down to him, because they wouldn't call him their Lord and God. Because when they walked into the city of Ephesus, for example, they wouldn't do what you had to do if you wanted to go buy and sell. When you walk into that city, if you wanted to buy and sell during the time of Emperor Domitian, you had to light incense. You had to recite a passage worshiping Caesar as Lord and God. And then when the incense burned, you took the ash and you put it either on your forehead or on your hand. 
as a sign that you have worshipped Caesar and you are now free to buy and sell. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't offer their worship and allegiance to Caesar and to Rome. So he kept them from providing for their families, imprisoned them, tortured them, and crucified them. They were afraid. And Jesus tells the seven churches of that time, God's complete church, which includes us even here today, do not be afraid. Remember the story. I was dead, and now I'm alive. Jesus is saying, I defeated death, and not only did I defeat it, but now I own it. I'm the keeper of the keys of death. I overcame it, I defeated it, I neutered it of all of its power. It's the worst that this world can do to you, and I took care of it. And one day you'll be delivered into new life, into my kingdom. He's also saying to us, I know it's terrifying. Remember the story. I was terrified that night in the garden. I wept, I pleaded with God not to make me suffer and die. But that was God's plan, and I was obedient. And because of my suffering, because of that victory, you never have to be afraid again. Y'all, that's good news. The good news for us today is that no matter what's happening in the world around us, it will not be like this forever. Like, we may be afraid right now of a pandemic, and that's not crazy. But you need to remember, it won't last forever. As a nation, we're afraid of each other. One day, we will be united again. On Friday was September 11th. I remember it clearly, I'm sure most of you do, that we're alive. But I had a friend who posted a really profound thought. We always say never forget September 11th. Amen. But we should also never forget September 12th. Because what happened on September 12th? We forgot about every division between us. We weren't fighting about our race. We weren't fighting about politics. We weren't fighting about left and right. We were united as one people through our suffering. We can be united again one day. If not here, then on the other side. We might be afraid of other nations, what they're going to do to us, other people. Revelation tells us one day we will be one people who are made up of every language and tribe and tongue, falling at the feet of Jesus, enjoying his presence, his love, his joy, and his mercy forever. We need this revelation today. We need it so that we can clearly recognize who Jesus is. There are so many other voices that are trying to get us to put our hope in them. There are many would-be messiahs, and there are a lot of people that we want to label devils. The church needs to remember there's only one messiah, and there's only one enemy of that messiah. We get to pick whose side we're on. And as we listen to all that noise, we need this revelation so that we can clearly choose the right side. We need to be able to recognize Jesus, not just when he returns, but we need to be able to hearly, clearly hear and recognize his voice. 
We need to know when we see a reflection of his character, his authority, his presence among us. There are just, there's too many voices today. There's too much talking. There's too much 24-hour news. There are too many opinions on social media. There's too much noise. And we all know by now that all of it is really trying to scare us into thinking one way or another. It's all trying to scare us to join one side or another. Every voice on this earth has an agenda. Well, the truth is, Jesus' voice has an agenda too. And it's to tell you, do not be afraid. No matter what's happening around you, do not be afraid. Y'all, I'm confident that the noisy fear in this world, it's only going to get worse over the next couple months. So what do we do with that? To be honest with you, some days it gets me so down. Like it makes me sad and depressed. It makes me feel like there's no hope. But that can't be who we are. The world needs the church right now. And we need to be a people who are calm and sober and focused so that in the midst of all the noise, we can clearly hear Jesus say to us, do not be afraid. I've got the keys to all of it. Things are not as they seem. Everything's going to be all right. And like my friend Phil says, remember, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Let's pray. Father, for the past few weeks as we've been getting ready for this, I have been praying every day that this church would recognize your calm, loving voice through this book. That it would not draw out of us fear, but that it would be like, it would be the cure for the fear that we experience every day in this world. So God, speak that hope into us. On those days when we're doubting and when we despair what's happening around us, remind us this isn't the first time the world's been falling apart. It won't be the last. But in the end of it all, you're there, you're victorious, and we have nothing to fear. We thank you that you've called us to be a part of your family, that you give us hope and a way forward. I pray that you continue to form us into a people who can not only know that and own it within ourselves, but share that good news with the world around us. Guard our tongues. Guard our fingers as we type. Remind us that we are not a people who are supposed to contribute to the noise. We are a people who are to give hope. To tell the world, do not be afraid. Because Jesus loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.